Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ali McCluskey. We have a unique type of episode for you today as we bring you an incredibly raw and inspiring conversation between Asia Bradley at First Boulevard and Amy Noyakis from Anthemis that recently took place as part of the jam-packed two-day Wharton FinTech Conference. Of our 150 speakers across 30 panels and six fireside chats, this conversation was one of the standouts. So we're thrilled to share it on the podcast as well. For background, Asia Bradley is the founder and COO of First Boulevard, the unapologetically black digitally native neobank building generational wealth for black America. She previously held leadership roles at Scylla Money, Socure and Synapse, and started a grassroots community of underrepresented founders called hashtag how she works. And in this conversation, Asia is joined by Amy Noyakis, founder and CEO of Anthemis Group, the leading digital financial services investment firm. Amy is also the founder and CEO of Archer Gray, the media production, investment and content company. Her current investments include Betterment, Trove, Happy Money and Currency Club. In this episode, Amy and Asia discuss why even now Asia still fails KYC in the US, the explosion of niche and community-based neobanks and their tough path to profitability, how George Floyd's murder inspired Asia and her co-founder to create the legacy they wanted to see in the world, bank deserts, zip code discrimination, the ethics of AI, and why the term underserved is not synonymous with impoverished, and finally, Anthemis's motto of doing more good than evil and building more resiliency in the financial system along the way. So without further ado, here are Amy and Asia. Asia, how are you? I'm doing well, and I actually feel almost like it should be reversed. Like I should be interviewing you instead of <laughs> interviewing me. So I, I just feel really lucky. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me here today with you. Um, just for everyone um, who isn't more familiar with Anthemis Group, um, I am Amy. I'm the co-founder of Anthemis Group. We are an investment platform, a global investment platform um, with offices throughout Europe and the U.S. with an exclusive focus on um, what has become affectionately known as fintech. We focus uh, exclusively in the early stage of financial services. I'm thrilled to be with you guys here today and more thrilled to be here helping support and introduce the world to Asia Bradley, who is the co-founder and CEO of First Boulevard, Full Disclosure, an Anthemis portfolio company. And Asia, I won't take up much more time here than to dive into things. Um, you know, your personal story is fascinating. And I thought we'd maybe start off with giving you an opportunity to really share with the audience your journey pre-First Boulevard and, and how you got to this idea and really give us an overview too of, of what it is you guys are trying to do. For sure. Yeah. So good morning, everybody, regardless of whatever time zone you're in. Really great to be here. So I'm actually an immigrant to the United States. And I really like to mention that because it did formulate like who I am as a person. And I've really sort of been one of those people that just not very much was sort of expected out of my life versus where we've kind of come to. So to give you some more background, I was born actually in South Asia. And when I was born, you know, I was essentially born into a place with, I call it a mud hut, but it was basically like a mud structure. There was no electricity, no running water, no doctors. And I'm one of those girl children that you hear the UN talk about in terms of registering your girl child. So I'm actually one of those girl children that was never registered at birth. And the thought process behind this was, 
she's a girl, you know, infant mortality is really high in our, you know, area of the world. And so let's see if she even survives infancy and childhood before we waste the money of registering a girl. So I did survive, but then it was a situation of like, okay, but we're never really going to send her to school. She's just going to get married. She's never going to have to get a job. So that's going to be her role to kind of get married, have a husband, take care of him, bear children, and that's it. I was very lucky in that my parents had the foresight to leave South Asia and move to Canada. And the whole world changed for me. My entire life changed for me. At that point, you know, education was on the table and not just on the table, but really, really emphasized. And so my parents believed very strongly, you know, as I'm sure a lot of immigrant families will relate to in terms of like, get your education. And that's the way that you get ahead in this world. And so I graduated from college in Canada. And then I found myself just wanting to see more of the world. And I took a job at Cisco Systems in the Europe, Middle East and Middle East and Africa headquarters in Amsterdam. And that was incredible because it really got to open up my eyes and sort of see a worldview and sort of see how haphazard everything is in terms of what opportunities we think we have earned versus, you know, what we're kind of born with in terms of the privileges that we have. And I'm very conscious of the privileges that I was born with that I possibly didn't have. So left Cisco, moved on to the Middle East for a while. I was in Africa, in Egypt in particular, and you know owned a PR and marketing communications agency there. Worked on a lot of exciting projects, including the eradication of polio. Really, really proud of, as well as other public health campaigns. And also did some work with Starbucks, launching Starbucks in Egypt, launching H&M. So a lot of fun things as well. And then the revolution started. And I realized that we needed to get out of there. I had a son at the time and he was very young. And I thought, gosh, like I need to get him somewhere safe. And I landed in the States. So I landed in Chicago where I then started another company. So you can kind of see the theme entrepreneurial (laughs) sort of theme has been there from the beginning. So I landed in Chicago, started a wellness center. As a Canadian, you can't just start earning an income in the USA. You can pay taxes, but you may not make a living. Uh, And so I decided I've got to become an entrepreneur again and came in on what they call an investor visa. And so started up Shala Plus, which was a wellness center. So it was a medical spa, a lot of fitness classes. It was really kind of like a woman's club, had 90% of our clientele was women. It was a 20,000 square foot facility. And then, you know, ended up selling that and moving on. I, I realized I missed tech and decided to come out to the San Francisco Bay Area where I am now. So I'm in Marin County, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, became part of the founding team of Synapse, which was, I'm really proud of my time there because it was actually one of the very first banking as a service platforms out there. Uh, And of course, since then, a lot more have shown up, but it was an exciting time because we were forging those relationships with banks that banks had never seen before. They didn't know how to work with a fintech. They didn't know or trust that we would be able to learn about the regulatory affairs well enough to be able to operate within them without being regulated by the regulators. And so it was really a great time to kind of prove out that concept of, yes, we can learn all the rules and yes, we can learn them so well that we can figure out where we can be creative, technologically speaking. And then, you know, I thought this is great. Things are going on really well moved on to SoCure, was curious about the KYC space in terms of ID verification. I'm one of those folks that always fails KYC. 
kind of reminds me all the time of where I come from because of the fact that I was never registered. You know, that's sort of one of those things that always happens. So anytime I try to apply for a card or try to, I applied to get a Verobank account and I was rejected because they weren't able to see who I was and see that I existed. And so I thought I need to learn more about this, spend some time at SoCure. And then I spent some time. I want to lean in on that point too, because yeah. I think a lot of people don't appreciate that. You and I talked about this a lot, right? So you fail KYC every way, which way, et cetera. And we've yeah. heard your whole story coming sort of from nowhere to where you are now, but you fail KYC today. You I do fail it right now, right? Yeah. As a very successful woman with financial security. So that I think is fascinating to me. And I think a piece of the puzzle that I think a lot of people don't realize when we talk about these opportunities and need to serve what is, you know, quote unquote, underserved. Underserved does not mean necessarily impoverished. That's exactly. And I'm so glad you brought up that point because often underserved becomes synonymous with poor or not a good customer, not someone you really want to have as a customer. And so you kind of think like, oh, should we bother spending all this time unserving this customer? They're underserved because they're unwanted. Now that part is true though. They are unwanted in my eyes by the incumbent banks. And so it, it's crazy because I am a good customer. You know, I'm a chase, I'm a private client. You know, I've got a really great credit score, but it took me about, you know, well, the entire time I've been in the USA to kind of build that up. When I first got here, I actually had to get my brother to co-sign on my account to be able to open up a bank account at Chase. So I couldn't even open up an account on my own. And I came from being an international business executive in Europe and the Middle East to the USA, and I couldn't get more than a $500 secured credit card. I couldn't get more than 500, even though my account was well capitalized, you know, so my account was there, but they were like, nope, we can only give you $500. So I went from, you know, virtually unlimited capital, like unlimited credit elsewhere to come to the USA. And it was like, oh, womp, womp. <laughs> no more than 500. Here we go again. Yeah. 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 It's like you start all over. And so this whole thing of like meritocracy and women, equality, et cetera. And then you think, gosh, I already did all that there. And now I've got to come back here and start from scratch. And luckily, you know, I had the perseverance and the ability to do that, but not everyone is going to be able to have the means. You know, I had the support around me. I had a brother that could co-sign for me, but what if I didn't have that? No, it's unbelievable. I mean, we've been watching um, at Anthemus the growth of the digital neobank space from the very beginning, right? We were one of the first investors in Simple Bank, which I think probably goes on record as being one of the first neobank. And we've watched kind of around the world, these banks start to grow in an important sort of subsector of neobanking, right? Supporting specific communities, whether it's Chime or the SoFi, but new bank in, in Brazil, tied in the UK for the SME market. There's so much going on in this space. And I think that um, the first Boulevard story is fascinating for all the reasons you're pointing, but I'd, I'd love to get a sense of what was the moment for you where you said, this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it. And this is how it's going to be done, right? Because it's starting to get crowded and we'll talk a little bit about kind of how you stand out in that space. But what was that sort of origin moment that made you think that first Boulevard was the only choice for your next entrepreneurial venture? Yeah. So, you know, I you brought up simple. So I actually, Shamir is a dear friend of mine someone that I really look up to. And so I was actually working with him at Silla Money. And so I was helping him with revenue stuff and everything was going great. You know, he had just promoted me, loved the team and it was awesome. And then, you know, George Floyd happened. 
you know, so May 25th last year, George Floyd happens. And, you know, I, I happened to watch the video as I'm sure everybody did. And I sat there and when he called out to his mama, that was it. You know, everything changed inside of me. Everything changed in terms of the way that I looked at the world. You know, my partner and I, we have three sons and our oldest son is half black. And so we thought, gosh, like that could easily be MJ on the floor there. Um, And at the time, I really was just reaching out to friends that I think I could talk to. I needed that sort of talk space. And I reached out to Donald, who is another dear friend. He was based in Kansas City. And so I just picked up the phone. I called him up. and I was like, Donald, like, how are you doing? And his wife at the time was expecting their second child, their first son. And he was just like, yeah, I think actually when he first answered the phone, he was like, yeah, I'm fine. I was like, no, 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 Donald, I'm not asking like generally, I want to know how you're doing. And then he's like, shoot, nobody's asked me that, you know? And so we started talking and then we realized that, you know, things were great in our lives, but what were we going to leave to our children in terms of the world? And, and it became one of those things then that we both, our wheels just kept turning. And at one point, you know, Donald was like, I've got this idea. And I didn't even let him complete his sentence. I was just like, let's just do it. You know, and he was like, wait, what? And I was like, yeah, I'm in, let's just do it. And we literally quit our day jobs. You know, we quit our day jobs right then and there and thought, this is something we have to do. We need to save our children's lives. We need to save our community. This is not something that we can stand for anymore. And luckily, Donald and I were in a great place that we honestly, we thought we were going to just bootstrap this. We managed to recruit a couple of other crazy people along the way and said, like, come on, join us in this thing. And Brittany Canty, she was one of the first ones as well. And she's our VP of product, comes from Braintree PayPal. And we were just really excited that we had this like great core team kind of working on this. And then luckily, again, we bumped into people like you, you know, through our networks, got introduced to you, a couple of other great capital partners. And before we knew it, we had a seed round forming around us. And so as you remember, it was an unsubscribed seed round and we managed to raise and and close that in November. And since then, we've just been heads down building this product. Our team has grown to about 20 now, but I mean, it's, it's just been the greatest ride of my life so far. And now, now let's get into kind of the stuff that's tricky from a business build perspective, right? So your idea is certainly unique for First Boulevard, but it's not unique in the neobank space, right? There are currently, I think, 19 Black-owned banks. You're not the only one out there. Now, I personally have a bias to think that you are and will be one of the best. But And I and I, I think that's a sort of an interesting point. It's like the kind of, it happens all the time in the women, women gender debate too, right? It's like, well, there are 19 Black-owned banks, so we've got enough already, right? Which to serve 13% of the Black population, it feels like there probably could be more than 19 and there might even be more than 100, right? We could handle that. But given how fickle the world is and quite frankly, how crowded the space gets very easily, we know there isn't just one solution for serving an entire community, but why don't we talk about a little bit with all the competition, what is it that you guys are doing at First Boulevard specifically that you think is a compelling proposition for customers, but also for potential investors? So 19 Black-owned banks is an old number, unfortunately. And it's crazy because Don and I will like have our, our calls in the mornings and it'll be like, he'll be like, Asia, another one just got acquired or another one just shut down. So I think, honestly, I think we might be at 15 right now. And it's been all within the last six months. You know, I think a lot of these banks were really hit hard by the pandemic as well. 
And you're seeing also some of them kind of join together and unfortunately not voluntarily or not strategically to become bigger and more powerful out of need. They're kind of consolidating. So it is kind of scary when you see that, that, you know, yes, there were 19, actually there were even more before that, but this is downward trend. And part of it does have to do with the classification of these banks. They typically are CDFIs that become certified as MDIs. And then the way that they can operate within the banking space is very different from the way like a Wells Fargo or a Chase can operate in terms of how much they're able to lend out, sort of what sort of balance sheet they need to have in terms of how much money they have to put back into their community. Right now, for example, Wells Fargo, Chase, all of those bigger banks, they have the same sort of requirements in terms of how much they need to reinvest in certain opportunity zones. However, they can get away with just paying a fine, which is kind of like pennies on the dollar. And so why spend the money spinning up a department to kind of make that happen? Instead, I'll just pay a fine to the regulators and that money never goes back into the communities. So that's one thing in terms of the number of Black banks. And then you pointed it out already, 13% of the American population is Black. So definitely we could easily have hundreds of banks and still not be able to support the true need of the community. But the way that we differentiate is right now, everything is moving digital and mobile. And so being able to have a digital first, mobile only bank that essentially is open at all times, right? You can log into your phone and it's open everywhere. Right now there are bank deserts. So in in black and brown communities, you just don't have a physical branch. And so how do you go and even open up an account unless you live within the radius of that, those 19 black or those 15 black banks now? And the other thing, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but currently if you walk into a bank within a predominantly black or brown neighborhood, your minimum balance requirement is going to be higher than if you were to do the very same thing in a predominantly white neighborhood. And it's going to be about $240 higher. And this is important because that's the threshold at which you start getting fined those overdraft fees. Last year, consumers paid over $30 billion in overdraft fees alone. So where is the incentive when that is like a big line item, a revenue line item for a bank to actually try to help the community that's paying those? Yeah, that's right. Yes, which communities are paying those fees. I actually think one of the things that we talk about quite a bit is the inherent bias as well in the lending mechanisms and the specific communities of color and what these biases are doing to these communities kind of on a long-term systemic basis. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I know it's an area that you guys are trying to address and attack. Yeah, there is. So, you know, a lot of the times what you'll find, and it's, you know, one of the main reasons also why I feel KYC, you know, but a lot of the situations that you're seeing is that zip code discrimination, right? And there are other ways to sort of, let's call a spade a spade. It comes down to where that person is living. And, you know, you predominantly are finding that these are black and brown neighborhoods where you have a lot of the lending sort of rejections. And I know we've got FICRA and, and it's there to kind of help us out on this front, but it does still happen. And now what's happened is that previously it was one of those things where, well, you walked into a loan office and the person in front of you was potentially racist. Well, now the systems are racist. So you've got, you know, the sort of use of AI without responsible and ethical viewpoints. But, you know, what I always bring into this is representation. Representation really does matter. Um, You know, we had an example, one of the previous companies that I worked with where, where we had developed an incredible algorithm 
that was really working well. It was decisioning the way that we had expected it to decision. And we're like, gosh, like this took us so long to build. And we were excited to kind of launch it into the space until one of our developers realized that we were disproportionately rejecting people of a certain demographic. And it was happening consistently. And so at that point, the decision at the leadership level was what do we do with this? And the nice thing was, is that there were sufficient people in the leadership that had that moral compass and that ethical sort of viewpoint on how we apply AI, that they stood up, put their foot firmly down and said, I am not okay with releasing this algorithm and putting this into production. And so we didn't, but this does not happen. That does not happen in other companies. In most companies, it won't. Because what will happen is they'll say, we spent all these months in R&D, we've got to launch it, we put these deadlines in place, and it's got to get out. And so one of the things that you know we really pride ourselves on at First Boulevard is our team is truly diverse. So to the point where as we're building out our products for our community, we are actually the customers of those products as well. And so we developed a persona, for example, her name is Nia. She's in her late 20s to late 30s. It really helps actually when you see that person as you're building for her. She's got some student loan debt. She's highly educated, you know, just like me. You know, her parents told her the way to get ahead is to get that education. But a reality of America is a college educated Black person makes just as little as a white high school graduate does. You know, it's crazy. Got to get a master's degree as a Black person to earn as much as a white high school graduate. But so as a result, she's got these student loans. Her parents weren't able to pay for her education. And so now she's trying to balance herself and find her way through this world. And so we have several Nias that are actually on our team. And so as we're building out these products, they're always like, oh, you know what would really help Nias? This. You know what would really help Nias? And it's like, I love it because now we actually have people building the product for the people that are going to use it. Yeah, no, and there's no doubt that, uh, you know, they're building it for themselves. That's precisely it. Well, I'm going to take a step outward because I I know that our audience will be interested in this um, as we kind of look at the broader landscape of VC and and fintech. And you and I could talk about diversity and, and the need for representation in the markets and in all the products and businesses that we build and serve probably all day long. But there has been a lot of talk, I think, positive momentum towards the attention given to diversity in the early stage tech world, um, in fintech specifically. And we both, I think, can agree that, you know, as two women and and one woman of color, that a a lot of it has been authentic, but probably more of it has been what we would consider, you know, that sort of virtue signaling and that kind of inauthenticity. And I wonder when you talk about being at a company, you know, even before First Boulevard, where you had a leadership team that had to make the tough decision of taking months and years of development money and effort and throwing it away because it was broken and didn't work and wouldn't have served the community for good. You know, we talk about that all the time at Anthemus because our guiding principles are based exclusively on the idea that we do more good than evil in the system and that we take a lens for diversity, equity, and inclusivity that allows us to build more resiliency into the financial system rather than less, right? And in doing so, we can make a lot of money for the investors and a lot of money for our founders, but we're doing more around our core value system and our moral compass is very clear. You get hired knowing that that is where your moral compass is. What 
is it that's going to make a fundamental change in this industry to have more companies like First Boulevard, more companies that I, I hope Anthemus falls into that category and, and other folks? Like, What do we need to do as an industry, in your opinion, to make sure that we are holding ourselves accountable, really accountable to making these new companies lean on values that will make this world a better place? Yeah, you know, I think that they're number one. I'm I'm so grateful for the existence of companies like yours, honestly. And it's it's one of those things like being funded by Anthemus was truly a dream. And it has been a dream come true because you all have been super supportive every single step of our way. And you know, this is a plug for anybody out there that is looking for a really incredible capital partner, you've got to hit up Anthemus. And, and I tell this to everyone. So I think. The important thing is just finding more people like you in this space and Anthemus and the entire team you've put together. It's not that common. It really isn't. And I think you're lucky because you're sitting there with that team of people with that moral compass. And maybe you don't see beyond that so much, but like, it's really bad out there. And I've sat through hundreds of these VC meetings and kind of looked and kind of thought, gosh, you don't see me. You really don't see me because you can't see yourself in me. And that really sort of really hits to the point where it's like, get out of your comfort zone, start looking at people for who they are truly, start looking at the world for, and I love how you say that, like do more good than evil because end of the day, we're going to do some evil inadvertently, but let's just make sure we can balance it out so that we're doing more good. But yeah, there were so many folks that we spoke with during our seed round and in the previous companies where we've raised as well, where I thought, gosh, I don't want to be interacting with you on a regular basis. I yes. just don't. And I think that's so important. And I want to talk a little bit about that because I'm sure there are a lot of folks in the audience who are, are about to get funded or are thinking about it. But I think we've always believed, and, and I would encourage anyone in this audience that has even a remote piece of this belief in their system to hold it strong and to follow it because we need more people. And I'm confident and very optimistic that there are a lot more people in the world that want to do good than evil. But I think we set people up for a fail when we present an industry picture that doesn't match our core value system. And so we need more people to come into the industry and to push against the kind of bad decisions that can be made. And it's so important in our industry, I think more than any other industry, because if we get the financial system right, if we get it right for financial services, we can lift up and get it right for the entire economy. And particularly at a moment when, you know, this pandemic has left countries and communities around the world desperate for reinvention of the economic system that has been destroyed. It's got to happen by entrepreneurial know-how. It's going to happen by new people and different people getting access to capital and starting new companies. It is our job and it is our responsibility to put that capital in the hands of different people so that different people can lift up their families and different people can lift up their communities. That's how we will heal. And that is how we will rebuild. And I do it a bit as a call to action because I know that there are lots of folks out here that are thinking about their first job or their second job, or they've got access to capital that they can deploy. And it's important because if we don't do it, it's not going to happen. And I know I've been doing this now for 30 years. There are people in this community that look like us, think like us all over the place, but sometimes they just don't feel there's a place for them. And and I think we're both here to tell you that there absolutely is a place for them. But let's take a little shift to the idea of raising capital. 
And I think one of the things that you said, Asia, you know, we've had such a great experience with you guys, but it isn't always a love fest, right? There are hard moments. We have to tell you things that you don't want to hear. You tell us things that we don't want to hear. And I think that's important for people to appreciate, right? That finding an investor isn't just about, you know, oh, look, we've got our investor and off we go and we'll be happy for the next, you know, 50 years. But I I wonder now with sort of the competition in the world for capital to be deployed in this sector and the desire for entrepreneurs to move quickly and aggressively to sort of, you know, keep their companies alive and, and grow them fast. Like, what are some of the sort of things that you guys think about when you think about, you know, your growth trajectory and how to build a company that has that sort of solid foundation and will be here five years, 10 years? Because it's one thing for you to be valued at some wonderful valuation and then not be existing in two years' time, right? How do you think about long-term success for First Boulevard and, and for really anybody that's thinking about starting a company right now? Yeah. So luckily, actually, all the companies that I've been part of where we have raised, our focus has really been on how do we get to revenue as quickly as possible, right? How do we become self-sufficient as quickly as possible? And then you're trying to sort of find that balance between being able to grow aggressively where you are just spending more than you're bringing in, which let's face it, in a neobank space, you're always going to be spending more than you're bringing in, at least for the first three to five years. That's just you know the reality of how long it takes to kind of get a neobank profitable. But you know, for me and Donald, we're both revenue junkies as well. And so both of us are in that partnership space and, and we're already really on that track to become profitable a lot sooner than most. But that's just something that Donald and I have been doing. Like we really are kind of just raging against the storm here in terms of we're going to have a neobank stood up before, you know, within 12 months. We officially started this in August is when we got incorporated. And our launch date is Juneteenth, two months from now, less than two months from now. So to be able to kind of go from getting incorporated to actually a launch date within what is that nine, 10 months? That, that's crazy. That's crazy. You know, and we all know that. And, you know, when I was at Synapse, we launched you know, hundreds of fintechs and we didn't get them launched that quickly, you know, in terms of when a company started and were able to get there. So I think for us, that's really key is that we are working with a sense of urgency because it is a passion for us. It is something that we do feel a sense of like lives will continue to be lost if this problem is not solved. And so I think for us, it is such a huge problem to solve. That Donald and I kind of, we wake up to this problem and we go to sleep and we don't go to sleep to that problem, you yeah. know, because it is literally lives on the line as the way that we see it. The other thing is, is that as you're formulating your rounds, like each round matters. A lot of entrepreneurs that I talk to, they're always like, oh, the seed round is the hardest. And it's like, no, like every round is the hardest yeah. round for different reasons, right? It's it's sort yeah. of 20 steps forward for 10 steps back. Yeah, it is. And then every single time you're dealing with different personalities and then actually it gets more and more complex because in your seed round, you have a certain set of smaller number of personalities. And then you start thinking about your A round and now you're like, we got to bring in somebody new and how are they going to play with everybody else in the playground? And then you start looking at board seats, right? So then you start thinking about who's going to be on the board, whereas before maybe it was a much smaller board. So each single time things keep changing and you have more people that need to be mission aligned. So definitely, I mean, it's consider who you're bringing on board at every single step of the way. 
Make sure that they're people that you really want to work with. And disagreements are great as long as disagreements are done in a way that's respectful and really constructive, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, again, something that we really valued with our current partners is that the disagreements haven't even been disagreements because they've been more like a, oh, have you thought of this? Or have you thought of that? Or it's more like having people that can help us see around corners and then finding, you know, companies that have invested in similar companies or are leaders in this space. So in terms of fintech, you and P72 have been incredible. And then our the family office that we work with as well, they're just experts in the space. And so we've been able to kind of really accelerate our product roadmap as a result of that. Also looking at the portfolio companies, like our brother and sister portfolio companies, being able to partner with them to launch certain features and having that immediate introduction to them because we're all part of the same portfolio really makes a big difference too. And I think also I'd point out that, you know, because there's been a lot of noise recently about these sort of large hedge funds coming in and just dumping money at high valuations. In, and it can be very attractive to a company who is absolutely desperate to raise cash quickly and grow. But the pushback really there is that there is no acceleration for that company beyond that check if they can't connect you to industry standouts that will support the growth of your business, strategic partners, potential consumers, right, or, or platform enhancers. And to your point, an ecosystem of other founders who, you know, we, we often sort of have this, we do this retreat and in the retreat, one of the, the most popular events is sort of founder is the loneliest number yeah. because you do feel at times that you are the only person and I'm a founder as well, the only person that sort of is joining your kind of experience, but really um, it's wonderful to have the ecosystem behind you. Let's step out for a second and kind of look at this last year. 2020, we have watched this category of fintech accelerate beyond, which is great for folks like you and for me. I think it's hysterical that, you know, all of a sudden people needed an entire pandemic to shut down to be able to understand that our financial system might need some innovation. But we are here, and I'm really interested in hearing some of your thoughts about fintech neobank space, but just generally, what do you think is going to be the real trends and, and path of evolution for consumer fintech generally? You know, I think, and I welcome this, I think we're going to see a lot more niche sort of products coming out. There are a lot of small communities that just have not been served properly. And so some of the examples, Daylight, one of my favorite companies, it's a neobank that is focused on the LGBTQ community. And I love it because the problem that they're solving is so specific to their community, like planning for children, right? It's different when you're in a heteronormative relationship versus if you're an LGBTQ like relationship where you have to think about surrogacy potentially, or you have to think about whose sperm and whose eggs are you going to use? And you have to go the IVF route. So all these kind of things that are really very particular. So I think the niche sort of product is going to be very, very important. And it's even something new because we've always had USAA, right? We've had Tab Bank, which is focused on truckers, Fireman's Bank. We've had the Policeman's Bank. We've always had these. But I think now sort of centering it around things that we can't change about ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And well, Daylight, I'll shout out, is, a, is an Anthemus alumni, Billy Simmons. So we're very excitedly watching her progress. You know, one of the big pushbacks that investors always, um, I'm sure you hear all the time, is, well, is this market big enough? And I think that's what's so interesting about this community-based neobank space is that, yeah, the markets are big enough for certain, but we also have to take into account it's where do people want to bank? What do people want in service? That is a major trend change that I think generationally um, people have a hard time getting their head around that there will be millennials who will not bank where their parents banked. Yep. 
Well, and also, you know, the lifetime value of the customer is greater when they feel that their needs are being met. And this is the other thing is that I don't believe we've scratched the surface of what is truly possible in terms of the incumbent banking system. So right now, if you look at the amount of people that are underbanked, right, and unbanked, these are folks that really want to be banked. They just don't have someone that's actually looking to serve them in the way that they deserve to be served. And so what you have is sort of these folks that come in and underutilize a system because it wasn't designed for them. It wasn't built for them. They didn't build it. They weren't asked what should have been built. And that's the situation you're facing. But you can bet that someone who's using Daylight is going to be able to take full advantage of that full suite of products. And now you have a customer that maybe went to Chase and was only a 10% customer, but at Daylight, they're going to be an 80 or 90% customer. And, and I think that's the key here. Yeah. And I think in addition, that sort of ability to build a community within your customer base, which I think banks still struggle with, right? Even in these kind of private banking conversations, you hear all the time that, oh, we're connecting you with these people. But if you don't feel you have a natural affinity for one another or something in common, it's really hard to build those lasting relationships. And, and I think that's a real model. So what about, um? we just saw kind of our Zoom bombs for today, but the impact of remote work on fintech and financial services generally. You know, I think it's actually just opened up more room for creativity. At least in our case, we have been able to hire throughout the U.S. And so we found that I think that it really contributed to our diverse team. Our leadership team is half Black. Our leadership team is two-thirds female. We're 100% BIPOC. The company itself has equal gender parity. We're one-fifth LGBTQ. We're one-fifth self-identifying with disabilities. Half of our art company are caregivers. And so these are the kind of things, these are the kind of numbers that you just don't ever see in a startup, ever. And you definitely don't see it in a fintech, right? But it's the fact that we were able to be a remote-first company and sort of really focus on that in terms of meeting our employees where they are. So we meet our customers where they are, but we also meet our employees where they are. See them as humans. Yeah. And we have a kind of a saying at Anthem, we put our own mask on first. If we can't build our team to look like the markets we want to serve, then we won't be able to build companies that will serve markets that look like us. Right. And um, I applaud you because it's phenomenal. And I'm sure you hear it as much as I do that sort of, you know, well, how do you find all these women and black people and LGBTQ community people in the, you know, and and I kind of have to have a big laugh about it because we're not hidden, right? We are here, been here, (laughs) you have to work harder. And I think we say this all the time when you're starting a company and particularly for Anthemus, because we have an equal lens on diversity, it's sometimes easier for us to influence a company that's founders are not diverse to make them and help them understand how to open their networks, to recruit with diversity at the center and to grow from a company that is, you know, two, three people into a company that is 40, 50, 60 in a much better way than to just start with a diverse founder that understands it from the beginning. And so I think for any investors or or would-be investors out there, you know, that, that idea that in order to promote diversity, you can only invest in diverse founders. I think it's the exact opposite. We need to do a better job of bringing companies that don't have that natural instinct 
and quite frankly, don't have the networks, right? If you don't know anybody in your network, of course, the answer is going to be, I can't find any women or any people of color, but we need to, as investors and entrepreneurs that are focused on this, find ways to help people down this route. Do you think it's long-term? Do you think that this is a, you know, a kind of, we've had a turning point and that this is a, a trend that continues that a commitment to this, an authentic commitment to this is going to last? I'm hopeful, but I, I hesitate to be too hopeful at the same time, just because I've grown up with racism, you know, in my life. And I grew up being teased about my skin color. I grew up being beaten up because of my skin color almost every day. And so, so, you know, I I carry those, those memories with me. And it's one of those things where I'm, again, I hope so, but I read a book by, I think it's very small, I can't remember the last name, but it's called my grandmother's hand. Mm Mm-hmm grandmother's hands. Have you read that? It's such a beautiful book because he is a healer. And what I've learned is that a lot of these kind of changes take generations to happen, yeah, you know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm very, very hopeful in the next generation. I think there are a lot of incredible young people coming out that are a lot more open-minded than my generation was. And so I'm, I'm excited about that, but I'm a little bit unsure if I can say this is a permanent change. What I can say is that it is a permanent change in a lot of individuals that I have met that suddenly woke up over the last you know 12 months. And that to me is really exciting because I am seeing a shift in terms of messaging. I am seeing a shift in terms of just representation. So when you look at advertisements and you see more black and brown people there, the, you know, the Me Too movement was huge. Also seeing things like hashtags like Oscar So Black trending and then seeing a change even in that front. So I think there are small steps. I am one of those impatient people that I think the steps needed to be a little bit bigger, but the hope is there. The hope is yeah. absolutely there. Well, and this has certainly been a week about accountability and holding people accountable. And I think in this community, we need to hold ourselves and people around us accountable. The conversations are happening, which makes me optimistic. And I think they are tough conversations sometimes and they're real conversations. But I think we all have to do a better job of asking the important questions of not only our investors, our entrepreneurs of the higher teams, but as the allocators, right? Where are these LPs managing their commitment? to diversity and to representation and making sure that it's real and not just a check the box exercise, because that's the stuff that will stick is if we can keep this real and authentic. What sort of advice, Asia, can you give any would-be entrepreneurs um, in the audience that are considering taking a chance on themselves and on their ideas? What would be the sort of advice that you could leave them with? Yeah. One of the things I always say is just do it. You know, it's, it's the old Nike thing. Just do it. The worst that can happen is you fail. And so what life is all about that. And and I truly believe in learning through your failures and being able to get up and try it again. If you want to be a founder, resilience is key. You're going to hear a lot of rejection and you need to be comfortable with that and you need to embrace it and always just constantly learn from rejection. And it's one of those things again, where it's like, I can't tell you how many times I've heard no, but you sort of go like, ah, it sucks. And then you keep on going and you, you try to analyze like, why did I get that? No. Yeah. And what should I do differently next time to get a positive answer or get the outcome that I want? But I, I would say, enjoy the journey as well. A you lot know, of the times people are very tunnel focused and they kind of think like, I'm going to be happy when I reach this point. And it's like, no, You've got to actually look around you every single step of the way, enjoy every single moment, enjoy every challenge and enjoy being uncomfortable. 
You know, I think that's really key. I can't say that there's really been, been any moment of like rest where I feel like, oh, everything is great. I mean, but you have to find little, my, my partner laughs at me because to me, I've had three C-sections and I've had to work through every C-section as well. And so while I was sitting in the hospital and I was just like, no, I'm taking my full five-day retreat, <laughs> you know, recovering in hospitals to me were like my spa retreats. And right. I, I often think really like kind of fondly to those times when I could actually just lay on my back, you know, (laughs) it was amazing. And so if you look at it from that perspective, then every experience you go through is a positive sort of growth experience. It's a good learning experience, you know, even when they're crappy. That's right. Particularly when they're crappy, right? Exactly. Well, that's (laughs) growing. Like if you're down here, you're looking up. (laughs) There's no place to go. There's no other place to look. So it's all good. Asia, thank you so much for spending this time with me today. I am super grateful for you, for your inspiration, for your thoughtfulness, for your deep and deep conviction and commitment around this space. And I'm super excited to watch what you guys do at First Boulevard, where you go next. And on behalf of any and every girl, child everywhere, we thank you and wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the lively conversation. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or engaging with us on social media. It means a lot and meaningfully helps spread the word to more listeners. If you're looking for more content from our FinTech community, Please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. Here you will find interviews, articles, videos, and more content than you could ever ask for, analyzing and amplifying innumerable vantage points on the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Raphael Austria. Signing off, I'm your host, Ali McCluskey. Be well.